A couple of weeks ago, we were going through a book by a guy named James Kugel called Poetry in the Bible. And he talked about the soul, and he described it as a double agent. Your soul is something that is in you. If it stops being in you, you die. It's something that's given to you by God, and it's something that on your death goes back to God. You don't have complete access to it. There's stuff that goes on within your soul that you don't have entire access to. But one of the things about it is you know when it's in good shape and you know when it's kind of troubled. So he described it as a double agent. It's both you and it's from God, which I kind of liked. And one of the things that the Jews describe it as, a man married a king's daughter. And sometime after they got married, uh, he goes in to see the king for some reason. And the king says, how come you were getting all upset and beating your servants and all that kind of stuff? And the guy looks at him and says, oh. So he goes back to his house and he says, who's been ratting me out? And the servant looked at him and said, uh, you married the king's daughter. She's the one that told him. So it's sort of like having the king's daughter that you're living with. And when you die, the daughter will go back to the king. And one of the things about it is you are responsible for her care and maintenance while she's here. Your actions and your behavior can damage her. For example, in Psalm 51, when David messes around with Bathsheba, he comes before God and says, restore a right spirit within me. In other words, I've damaged my soul, and you're the only one that can repair it for me. And when the soul is down, the psalmist very often will say, be at peace, we're going to go up to the temple, and we'll be in the presence of God, and that will heal you. So, what we've got today is Joseph. And the first time we meet him, Joseph is a 17-year-old snot. He's dad's favorite. He's got the coat of many colors or the sleeved coat or however you want to describe it. His brothers hate him to the point where they're preparing to kill him. He rats his brothers out. He's just sort of a typical 17-year-old clueless jerk. Not speaking against him, that's just what he is at that point. By the time we see him today's parsha, he is a man of 30 who is mature and wise and able to be entrusted with the kingdom of Egypt. So something has happened between the age of 17, when he was an immature jerk, and the age of 30, when he is capable of running, at that point, the largest kingdom in the world. So the question that I'm going to ask is, what happened between that time and this? And for those of you who have been in Musar, there's two aspects of his personality or his soul that have been changed. There's more than that, but I was only going to do two, and I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to do two adequately. It's nice to have a little more time. The first one is simplicity, and the second one is patience. He learns both simplicity and patience in the time between he gets thrown in the pit by his brothers and he gets pulled out of the pit by Pharaoh and elevated. 
So let's talk about simplicity first. And the Hebrew word is hishtapkut, and what it means is happy with my portion. So let's look at Joseph. At the age of 17, he is the heir of a very rich man. Jacob has got flocks and herds and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And you all remember last time when he goes to reunite with his brother, he sends flocks, camels, donkeys, all that kind of stuff. And that's just sort of spare change for him. So Joseph is in line to inherit a great deal of wealth. That all gets taken away from him in an instant. He goes from there to being a slave, where he's got nothing. First thing to understand is the world we are in is enmeshed in material stuff. Material stuff is neither good nor bad. It's the playing field of the chessboard upon which God has placed us. And the person that you're going to be when you finally are in the presence of God involves whatever happens to you as you go through this world. God set it up. God knows the uses for that stuff, the material stuff, and God has put you in here to navigate that. It's the school, if you will, that is going to prepare your soul for him. There's a story about the Hafez Chaim. He's a Jewish rabbi that wrote the book on the laws of proper speech. And if you haven't been through that, we have a book in there that you can take, and it's, it's wonderful. Anyway, he lived in the 19th century. I think he died sometime early in the 20th century. And a guy from America was visiting him in Radon, Poland, which is where he lived at the time. He goes in to visit this great man. I mean, during his lifetime, he was regarded as a great sage, set up a yeshiva, was world famous. So this American goes and visits, and he finds a very, very simple apartment. Basically got a table and a chair, a lamp on the desk, you know, just nothing. And this guy is expecting something a bit more lavish because of this guy's international renown. And so he says, where's all your stuff? And the rabbi looks at him and says, well, where's all your stuff? And the American said, well, I'm just passing through. And the rabbi said, so am I. So the idea is he had figured out what he needed for his particular journey, and he had eliminated the stuff that was in his way and just had the stuff that he needed. That's what we mean when we're talking about simplicity. Getting rid of the stuff that you don't need, but hanging on to the stuff that you do need and the discernment about what that is. So Joseph goes from having anything that he wants that's available in 3,500 years ago, Canaan. He can have anything he wants. Granted, he can't have a transistor radio or a computer, but short of that kind of stuff, anything he wants is his. And he goes from there to being a slave. Literally everything that he has is taken away from him instantly. And as he goes through his life, what he's doing is 
he is learning how to get along without all the material support and material comforts and stuff that he has grown accustomed to. And of course, he thrives in that environment. Now, he's doing a couple of things. One is he's building up his soul because he is learning how to operate without dependence on material stuff. And the other thing he's doing is he's building up a resume. We've talked about that before. We can assume that Pharaoh's not stupid. You don't get to be the head of the most powerful country in the world by being a fool. So for him to recognize in Joseph the character that Joseph has built up over this period of time, and for him to say, you are going to organize the process of getting ready for the famine and getting us through the famine, is a recognition that Joseph has got a resume that he's been building. So the first thing is when he's in Potiphar's house, with the exception of the little problem that he has with Mrs. Potiphar, which is quite frankly not his fault. He does what he thinks is best and runs away, but the point is, up until that point, he has been managing everything that Potiphar has, and when Potiphar finally has to throw him in the jug, what Potiphar does is moves him from one area of Potiphar's operation to another area of Potiphar's operation because Potiphar is the captain of the guard. So he doesn't want to lose this valuable servant, but he can't let him be in the house with his wife behaving the way she is. So he takes and moves him laterally and puts him in prison. And of course, he rises to the place of running the prison. The question that you have to ask with respect to simplicity and I learned to ask this question of myself a long time ago. I'm only starting to figure it out, but I asked a question a long time ago. I never had an answer. How much wealth can God trust you with? And what Joseph has done is he has lost everything, and he has then begun the process of refining his own soul to the point where God can trust him with the future of Israel, and the future of Egypt. Now, I will gently suggest to you that if Joseph had not been ready at the age of 30, the famine would have been delayed until Joseph was ready. In other words, God's the one that's running the abundance of the famine. So the timing of the abundant period and the famine period is entirely in God's hands. So when Pharaoh has his dream, what you can understand is God at that point has decided that Joseph is ready. And he sets things in motion for the period of abundance to start and the period of famine to start. So the first thing that Joseph had to learn is how to deal with a lack of abundance and superabundance, both. And one of the things that will happen to Torah portions from now is when his brothers come before him and say, all right, dad's dead, please don't kill us. What he is able to say at that point is, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and God is the one who engineered all of this. So God is looking at Joseph as a 17-year-old snot and is saying, he's going to be the guy, but we got some corners to knock off of him. So the first thing we'll do is we'll sell him into slavery and we'll take away all his material possessions and build him up from the ground, which is what happens to him in Egypt. Now, one of the greatest tests of humanity 
is abundance. People actually do pretty well with poverty because if you're a believer, when you're in poverty, you got nobody else to depend upon except God. So you sort of cling to him because he's the only thing that's going to get you through and you know that. So in a sense, poverty is an easier test than wealth. The test of poverty, by the way, is how much are you going to whine? So if you get whining and feeling sorry for yourself and you start doing things like going into crime or socialism, which are the same thing, that kind of stuff, then you may fail the test of poverty. But poverty is an easier test generally to pass than is abundance. Abundance, you are tempted to feel like I did all of this myself. Anybody ever seen the movie Shenandoah with Jimmy Stewart? It's an old movie. And Jimmy Stewart is not a believer, but his wife was. And he's a widower now. And so they're sitting around the table. And because his wife has raised his children that way, and he still has feelings, obviously, for his dead wife, he says, all right, God, we give you thanks for all this food. We plowed the ground. We planted the seeds. We pulled the weeds. We did the harvest, we made the bread, but we give you thanks nevertheless. And that's the temptation of abundance. The temptation of abundance is to think you did it all and to forget God in that process. The problem spiritually with the United States right now is we are in a period of unprecedented abundance. We are just awash in material stuff. And the thing about material stuff is it's distracting. People can't walk five feet without checking their phone. Every time I walk by my desk, I bang my computer and pop it up, see, I get an email. I do that. Everybody does. And we've got, my dear wife wishes we didn't, but we have a storage unit for stuff that we don't use. It's a small storage unit. We used to have a big storage unit while my aunt was still alive, and when my aunt died, we cut it in half. So it's a small storage unit, so we're getting the right direction. But we do have a storage unit for stuff that we don't use. And it's got family letters and all that kind of stuff, but it's also got stuff that we will never use. And it's sort of in there in case our kids want it someday. And they've sort of told, no, we don't want that stuff. How about they may change their minds? We have grandkids coming up. Somebody must want to use all this stuff. The point is, money turns into a distraction, or abundance can turn into a trap and a distraction. So what Joseph has had to do during his period of captivity is the first thing he's had to do is be torn down and learn the soul virtue, S-O-U-L, virtue of simplicity. He's had to learn that he can get on in life without all the abundance that his dad was going to give him as an inheritance. He obviously passes that test. One of the things that happens often with household servants is household servants living especially in a wealthy house often fall to pilfering stuff. So for example, there was oh, one of these English period movies, series, I don't remember what it was, but the chief butler was berating one of the maids because she was taking candle ends. The candle had burned down and they had to replace the candle and she was taking candle ends. 
And the reason he was berating her is because that was his gig. He was taking the candle ends and he was taking them into town, selling the candle stubs to the candlers. They were being remelted and cast into new candles. And that was a paying gig for him. So when the upstairs maid started walking off with candles, he was really upset with her. The point of that exercise is that servants in a household of abundance have opportunities to enrich themselves on the side. And Joseph, by proving himself faithful in that, by resisting the temptation of enriching himself on the side with Potiphar's stuff, has passed the test of simplicity. And he has this little speech when Potiphar's wife is going after him. He says, Potiphar doesn't know about anything except the food in his mouth and you. Everything else is in my hands. He trusts me with everything else in this house. Now, how in the world am I going to ever betray him and sin against God by encroaching on the one thing that really belongs to him, his wife? The reason that little speech is in there is to show you that he has passed the test of simplicity. He hasn't been pilfering from Potiphar's house, either Potiphar's bread or Potiphar's wife. Now, the next thing that he's going to learn is patience. The Hebrew word for patience is shavlanut, savlanut, no, there's no H. And what patience means is bearing the burden. And interestingly, the thing about patience is it's unpleasant. In other words, if patience is not unpleasant, you are not exercising patience. If it doesn't hurt, it's not patience. In other words, if you're in a line of cars and you're sitting there and somebody's checking the phone and, and all that kind of stuff and if you miss the light because they never took off because they never took their eyes off the phone, if you are able to sit there and smile and just be very calm, you're not exercising patience, you're doing equanimity. Different virtue. Equanimity is also a virtue, but it's not patience. So how do we know that Joseph is exercising patience? What is he doing that's patient? It's two years from the time that he interprets the butler and the baker's dream until Pharaoh sucks him out of the jug. The patience is when he is elevated to the position of viceroy and he goes through seven years of abundance and then some number of years into the famine. During that entire time, he is the second most powerful man in Egypt. It is entirely possible for him to whistle up a squadron of Egyptian cavalry and say, I want you to run up to Canaan and find out what's going on with my family. In other words, he never uses his position and his power to go up and check on what's going on in his family. Remember, he has a prophecy. He's got that dream that he had that his brothers are all going to bow down before him. So he knows that there's a prophecy and he knows that that's going to happen and he knows that there's a famine in the entire land. He knows the famine extends up to Canaan. He knows that he's the only guy that's got grain to sell and he waits for at least seven years until his brothers finally show up. He is patient and I will guess that his patience is difficult. 
Anybody ever been a patient in a doctor's office? You know, the word comes from the Latin, and patient is someone who is suffering. So it is not the case that you are waiting quietly and patiently for the doctor to get around to you. In fact, you are doing that. But the reason you're called a patient is because you're suffering. And the reason that you show up at the doctor's office is because you're suffering. The length of time the doctor takes to get to you is irrelevant to whether or not you're a patient. Which is why I say that if patience is not painful, it isn't really patience. One of the places where I struggle with patience is driving down the diagonal. You go along and somebody will pull past you, going half a mile an hour faster than you are, and then match speed with the car in front of you. So you have these two cars moving along at the same speed, three miles an hour less than you want to be going. That's where I have to exercise some patience. And the point is, the thing that causes you to need to exercise patience is one of two things, pride or fear. So understand that patience, first off, is a creature of time. We were not in a time stream, patience it wouldn't exist. So the fact that we are in a time stream and things are sequenced in a time stream is the thing that makes patience both possible and necessary. Because what happens is your desire for the sequence of things and your desire for the timing of things is being obstructed. You are being impeded from getting something done at the rate that you want to get it done by something else. Now, there's sort of two sides to this. Side number one is something you can do something about. As I once told my young son when he showed up five minutes late to meet me for lunch, it's just as easy to be five minutes early as it is to be five minutes late. And what most of us tend to do is tend to focus on what we are doing until, okay, if I travel at exactly the speed limit, I have just exactly enough time to get just exactly where I want to go and be right on time. Anybody ever done that? At that point, if you get caught behind the two cars or whatever, shame on you because you haven't planned adequately. You haven't allowed for those kinds of things. And that's what I would call avoidable impediments. And if you haven't planned properly and you get yourself caught in an avoidable impediment, you're the person that's a problem because people chewing on their cell phones at five miles under the speed limit are a fact of life. And if you start off expecting that they aren't going to be there and you time yourself with the expectation they're not going to be there, you're a fool. Everybody understand that. What we're talking about is the other things that you really don't have any control over. And you've got to get something done and there'll be some kind of a consequence if you don't get it done on time. So the first emotion then becomes fear. There is a consequence here with my not getting this accomplished within this time frame and I really don't want that consequence whatever it is your boss may be angry you know your wife may deliver her baby on the highway I mean whatever that is that's fear you're afraid of a consequence and so you're impatient because you're afraid the second one is pride how dare those people hold me up don't they know how important I am? And I have a little family story. My mother used to do this. The only reason she was on time for her funeral is because she was actually dead. Whenever we went to go somewhere, 
we'd all be ready to get into the car. And we had a sufficient amount of time to drive to where it was. And she says, oh, I have to go check and see if I turned the thermostat down. Oh, my shoes need to be polished. It'll just take a minute. Oh, I need to, and she would piddle and dawdle and make everybody light. And I mean, my dad just went ballistic and so did everybody else. She was supposed to have been at a wedding one time. She waltzes in at the reception, having missed the entire wedding and made my sister miss the entire wedding because she dawdled. And that was her way of controlling the situation. What she was saying is, I am too important to leave here sitting in my living room while you go off and be on time. And once or twice, you can sort of chalk it up to, well, you didn't really plan things. But this was a behavior pattern. That's how I learned patience, by not leaving my mother sitting in the kitchen while I drove off and went to some place to be on time. But that's a pride thing. What she's saying to me is, I am more important than you getting to where you want to go. And she was saying that to me non-verbally, obviously. And so the reason I had to learn patience is because I would get very angry because she was treating me that way. That's pride on my part. Pride on her part, too. We had a contest going. Who had the most pride? Fortunately, God wrote in there, honor your father and your mother. Don't strangle them. Understand that patience is not pleasant. If you are in a place where you need to exercise patience, expect to be upset. That's the definition of the soul trait. Patience is not passivity. It's not just sitting quietly on your blessed assurance waiting for things to happen. That's not patience. That's passivity. Joseph was busy running the kingdom of Egypt while he was waiting for God's promise to come true and his brothers to show up as the prophecy said they would. But as I say, he absolutely had the power to send somebody up to Canaan and find out what was going on. He had that power. He didn't do it. Now, one of the things to understand is you need to learn what you can control and what you can't control. And you would be surprised how many more things you cannot control than you can. And one of the sources of impatience is an illusion that you have control over the situation. I mean, you're in a family. You're in a society. You're driving on roads. All of those kinds of things involve all sorts of stuff that you can't control. And so if you get upset every time something happens that is out of your control that delays you, you're going to spend a lot of time being upset. Understand that you're going to run into those all the time. It happens all over the place. And when it does, one of the things I will suggest that you do is you learn to watch your emotions. When we were going through the Massar course, one of the things that I suggested is that you set a watcher upon your own thoughts and you watch what you're thinking about. Because one of the things that happens with impatience is it goes from driving along, minding your own business, to rage in about a tenth of a second. It's that fast. And so if you watch what you're thinking about, what you can do is you can say, ah, this is going to cause me to be impatient. I am going to choose not to let it escalate into anger. 
because when you get angry, you start breaking things. Physical things, relationships, all sorts of stuff get broken when you get angry like that. And there's nothing that can throw you into anger quicker than impatience. So learn to watch what you're thinking about. And as you see, this is about to happen. Right now I'm impatient. And in about two seconds, I'm going to be angry. That distance between I'm impatient and angry is where you need to intervene. And you can then stop and say, is anything going to be solved by my breaking somebody's head here? And if the answer is no, then you can emotionally de-escalate. Now, don't get me wrong. Occasionally, breaking somebody's head is the proper thing to do. There are times like that. But they're actually remarkably rare. Those don't come up nearly as often as we think they should. The last thing I want to talk about is Shabbat. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that Shabbat is God's primary training vehicle for both simplicity and patience. What do I mean? Remember, simplicity is being overcome with stuff. And what Shabbat does is it tells you that you can get along without one-seventh of your time on this earth. In other words, the six that God says you can use is sufficient to get everything done and you don't need to use all seven. And what that does is it teaches you that there's stuff you can get along without. So that's the first thing that Shabbat teaches you. And the second thing it does is, of course, it teaches you patience. As the Jewish story said, as Shabbat is coming up, whatever you have on your workbench that needs to get done, you put down. It will still be there on Sunday. Remember, patience has to do with the time stream. You wouldn't be impatient if there wasn't a time element there. In other words, I have to be there by this time. I have to get this done in this time. I have to do this by then. That's all markers of patience. What Shabbat says is on a regular basis, one in seven, no matter what is going on, when we have sundown on Shabbat, your time's no longer your own. It belongs to God now. And whatever you thought you had to get done, we'll just have to wait until the first day. That teaches a bunch of stuff, but it certainly teaches simplicity and patience is what it teaches you. So as you think about Shabbat and you think about your life, Philippians 4.11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the point is, Paul has decoupled himself, in a sense, from the world. He's still part of the world. He's still got to go through the world. But he has the world in proper perspective. Sometimes I'm going to be in abundance. I won't let my abundance go to my head, and I won't act like a rich jerk. Sometimes I'm going to be hungry. I won't let that go to my head and start whining and looking for people to steal from. So what he's saying is I have learned to exist in both of those. So this is not just rabbinic. 
And then patience, 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The purpose of caring for your soul is you want it to become as Christ-like as you can make it as you're going through this world. And what Peter is saying is God is patient. God's not in a hurry. It takes Joseph 13 years to go from being a little snot to being capable of running Egypt takes that long. God is quiet and patient and he's working with him and he's putting him through things to develop him. God's not in a hurry. And as I said at the beginning, if the process of getting Joseph to the point where he was ready to do that took longer than 13 years, God would have just delayed the famine. No big deal. So the fact that God is patient and you want to become like Christ is a reason to learn to exercise patience. Je